Hello, everyone. My name's Jack Fernan, and this is Exploring Existence, the podcast that looks at the teachings and practices of the world's religions through the lens of personal experiences. Today on the podcast, I spoke with Zachary Isro, who is an assistant professor of philosophy and the humanities coordinator at Beacon College, Florida, and is also a meditation and mindfulness coach. Zach has spent his life asking himself the big questions, such as what does it mean to exist and what is the best way to do this? This has led him down many paths, both religious and philosophical, and we explore a number of these in our conversation. After discussing Zach's current work, we dive into the story of his religious development and how he was born into a Catholic family in Germany, but realized at age 11 that Catholicism wasn't for him. Following his spiritual curiosity, he turned to Buddhism and then through further reflection became a Taoist. Ultimately, Zach has reached a point beyond these religious traditions, but he still recognizes the valuable lessons they can teach us. And he shares this at the end of our conversation when we discuss his meditation and mindfulness coaching. Zach's questioning predisposition has also led him down the path of philosophy, and in particular, the area of ontology, which examines the nature of being. At university, Zach studied the work of Martin Heidegger, amongst others, who is the famous German philosopher whose major work, Being and Time, explores just this question, what does it mean to exist? Zach studied this work and its relation to Taoism, which in turn helped him develop his own philosophical outlook of the nature of being. We talked through Heidegger's understanding of being and its similarities to Taoism, and then moved on to Zach's own position, which he terms spectral ontology. So this is probably a more philosophical conversation than usual, but still one that explores the question of what it means to exist. And so everyone, thank you very much for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Zach, thanks very much for for coming on the podcast and having a chat with me. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun. Now, whereabouts are you at the moment? I, b- I believe you're in Florida. Is that right? Yes, yes. I am in uh, dreadfully hot Florida. So. Oh, well, I dare say that's better than a, uh, a windy and cold Sydney. So that sounds pretty good. And um, you're, you're working there. Can you, can you tell us what your, um, your job role is and what, what the title is and, and the role? Sure. So I am an assistant professor of humanities, and I'm actually a humanities program coordinator at Beacon College. Um, and so that means that not not only do I uh, have teaching duties, but I'm also sort of responsible for uh, leading the humanities uh, major program um, at our school. Uh, so I design the, the curriculum. I um, advise all the students in it, supervise their theses at the end, all that kind of fun stuff. Right. So you're sort of modeling the, the, the curriculum. What, when you're doing that, what are you sort of thinking about to put into it? Are you, are you trying to give them like a broad overview of philosophical ideas or you, do you want to try and hone them on one sort of style of thinking? So... It's kind of always a a bit of both, right? Um, So really our program was centered around the idea of if you had to um, rebuild society, what components do you need? What skills do you need? What knowledge do you need? Um, And so all of our courses are really geared towards developing like contemporary 21st century skills, um, which are, are oftentimes 
uh, put on the sideline, especially in humanities degrees. Um, You know, it's not just about learning from books, right? A lot of knowledge that we gain, we can put into practice. And the idea is always, how do we take this theory that we're learning and put it into practice? And I think that that's really what I tried to focus on in all of our courses. There's always some sort of hands-on uh, learning ability uh, or, or learning activity that we can do in that class um, that sort of is, in a sense, the capstone project of that class. Um, and then they all kind of work together for this overall theme of how, what, what would it take and what do we need and how do we do it to, to rebuild and regenerate society. Um, From a philosophical perspective, you're asking some pretty... Um big questions first and foremost of yourself to come up with an idea of what might be an appropriate philosophical and an ethical system on which to build a a uh, a society have you have you had much experience in asking yourself um like such big questions because you, you can you can never really separate yourself from from the context of the society that we have now but and it's almost like impossible to think of if you had a blank canvas, where would you, where would you start the picture? Yeah, no, I mean it's it's certainly it's certainly tough. Um, it took it took me quite a while to to plan out anything that is anything close to that. Um, but uh, you know, it's yeah, as as a philosopher and an anthropologist, um, you know, I do look at these kinds of things on a on a daily basis. I've spent my life devoted to looking at questions of, of building society and ethics and and existence and all these great things. Um, but I think one of the ways that we um, have structured our program to sort of help us in, you know, sort of digesting this, some of these heavy, heavy things is our courses are so interdisciplinary. Um, so you're not by, that's where that broadness comes in, right? Because you're not so specific to any given thing, um, you, you can draw on so many different backgrounds. And so we do a lot of team teaching in our classes so that, you know, you're getting two different perspectives from two different fields. Um, our classes are by nature interdisciplinary. So like we have a class that is called Modeling Social and Cultural Construction, right? Which is as the title suggests, very broad, right? You can do a lot of things with that. Um, so there are so many different directions that that class can go, and and but yet it's a class in which we we literally play like a role playing game, like a like a traditional like a tabletop role playing game, um, where the students actually are talked through, you know, and get to build their own society in this role playing game. Um, and then, you know, as they decide about resource distribution, we talk about, you know, justice and things like that for equal distribution issues and things like this. Um, and so it's a really cool hands-on class, but, um, because all our classes are so interdisciplinary like this, it helps kind of with sort of the, the largeness of these questions, right? Yeah. I suppose you're trying to come at it from quite a holistic perspective, which is probably the only way that you can really approach approach such a task. Yeah. 
Now, now, Zach, this is a, uh, as, as you know, it's a, it's a podcast that is on religion and, and you have an um, interesting and probably a little bit different uh, religious background. Can you provide us a bit of a, an outline of, of what that background is and how, it, how your religious story sort of developed? Sure. So growing, growing up, I was, I was raised in a Catholic family and, you know, that was... And you're, you're from Germany as well, am I right? Yes. So I, I, was, I was born in Montreal, Germany. Um, and, uh, and yep, I was raised Catholic. Um, my mom has always been pretty Catholic and pretty religious. Uh, my dad was younger and sort of kind of moved away from it as he got older. Um, and so I always had one parent who was more on the religious side and one who was not. Um, and so at a younger age, I started to kind of question things and then move away from it on my own. Um, and then in, you know, I've always had a philosophical spirit. So I've always been questioning things like existence and I always question everything I can. And so already at like age 11, um, I was already questioning things and then I was looking for something that fit sort of better with, with my reasoning at that time. Um, and there was our local, and, and sorry, so what, what was that? What was that reasoning? For what reasoning? Um, when you said that, you you were looking for something that sort of matched better with with your reasoning, and I suppose that's how you were viewing the world. How, if, if you can remember, how as an eleven year old were you were you looking at and seeing uh, your relationship with with the world? Sure. So. Um, I've always had a um, big concern with ethics. I've always been concerned with ethics and, and justice and, and things like that and doing what's right. And um, for me, there was a lot of uh, issues that I found in in what I was being raised to believe with ethics and morals and how we justify certain actions. And uh, and so for me, things didn't add up ethically. And, uh, and so it just, it wasn't helping me live my best life, I felt. And so that's what I was looking for, something that can, that adheres to sort of my moral standards and helps me be who I want to be, right, as an individual. Um, and so our local Buddhist temple did um, sort of group meditation times every week. And so I started <laughs> um, forcing my, my, my parents to drag me to these and uh, and let me go and, and sit on meditations and and uh, letting them know well, it's like it's like praying you know so you can come and you can you know pray in your mind but not going to do this meditation and uh, and so I started doing some meditation and I started to get really into Buddhism and uh, that lasted for a short little bit of time about four years or so. And uh, and then I started as I started to get really deep into it after that period of time, um, there were also, again, things that just didn't adhere or didn't align with sort of my understanding of ethics in the world. And um, and so then I, I sort of made what uh, I would say is the next logical step sort of in that direction. And I found Taoism and. Uh, and Taoism sort of worked really well for me for a really long time um, until relatively recently, I'd say maybe five years ago or so. Um, 
when you know there's there are just some things uh, that I don't I don't I don't like some sort of of the more mystical side of Taoism um, that a lot of times gets left out of, of things and um, and because I don't I'm not super mystical um, sort of I what I've ended up doing ultimately is I've sort of ended up um, just kind of having my own sort of system that I follow that's sort of an amalgamation of all these things that I've done in my past and being a philosopher I've you know I've also studied you know uh, I've read the Quran I've read um, the Talmud I've read a lot of the different texts from a lot of the different religions um, and so you know I've just sort of gone off and eventually done my own thing um, because it's so hard to find something that matches exactly what you're looking for always and so rather than just settling and and trying to match that I've just kind of started doing my own thing but and so when you were going from Buddhism to Taoism for the 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 person who is not very familiar with with the two um, ways of thinking um, they can they can be presented as as quite similar ideas that um, have a focus on in, introspection and trying to align yourself with a sort of philosophical way of doing things. When you were going from Buddhism to to Taoism, what was it that um, drew you to Taoism that wasn't there in, in Buddhism? I mean, I think it's I think it's the actual it's actually the opposite. So I think there were things in in Buddhism that aren't in Taoism that um, that I appreciated weren't in there. Um, you know, I think for example, I like the fact that in Taoism you have a very um, you have this sort of um, animating force, if you will, that moves through things, the Tao, right? And it moves through things and it, it's sort of the thing that makes everything happen the way it happens. And um, I sort of liked this um, and I and I liked that there's less reliance on... So both Taoism and Buddhism, right, have a, have a conception of reincarnation, but Taoism, in Taoism, reincarnation is less um, structured and formulated than it is in Buddhism, right? And 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 I I appreciated that this less um, this less intricate notion of reincarnation. I'm not uh, one of I've always had an issue with understanding um, reincarnation in Buddhism, even when I was really invested into it. Um, and so this less rigid, less structured idea of reincarnation um, was a little bit nicer for me. And in all, I just I found Taoism um, initially a lot less mystical um, even than, than Buddhism which I know sounds like it should be the reverse and ultimately um, I think I think it can be but um, there are a lot of things in Buddhism that, uh, I th that I think end up being more mystical the more you get into it than, than appears on the surface and, uh, and then ultimately I think that's the same with Taoism um, you know Taoism Initially, when you have Lao Tzu's Dao Te Ching, it's a lot more natural. But once you get to the Shuang Tzu, it's it's much more mystical, right? So I think there's a lot of mystical um, hidden agendas behind all these things. Um, and so I, I, I was, I'm constantly looking for something that's a little bit less mystical. I think is my problem, but which also um, takes a lot of these main concepts that I really enjoy, but 
ends up not being as mystical in the end. And uh, and that's sort of what I've always been looking for. What is it about the the mystical elements of, of those two um, traditions that you don't that you don't like, or, or, or mysticism in general? Because it seems that that's the that's the that's the rub that propels you away from those from those ideas. I think I think I have this sort of um, bias to to just always lean a little bit more scientific um and i just i've i've always had that um when i was really young i, I wanted to be uh, an astronomer i liked to study the stars um and so i've always just really had this scientific mindset even though i ended up going into philosophy um, i've always had this very scientific mindset and and i, and I think that I, I carry a bias towards this um and so it's not that i'm necessarily against mysticism if the mysticism really fits with with my understanding of the world, the way it act, there it works, you know, according to to the physics that we know and things like this, um, if it can align with what we know about the world, um, I'm okay with it. But there's a lot that doesn't, of course, and so it's it's when it doesn't align that I, I'm always leaning more towards my scientific bias, and, um, and so I think it's really just it's just quite simply that I have this bias towards science that just won't allow me believe to believe in anything that's so mystic that it doesn't it doesn't align with what we experience in the world quite interesting because my understanding of Taoism is that it's very much as you say it's based on the Tao um, or, or the way and um, people are sort of taught to live a life that um, conforms to the way and there are certain ethical norms that people should follow in order to live the way of the way but the 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 natural laws that exist in the world are really put forward as the laws of the way or or god if you want to want to call it that and so it seems to be a a religion that is quite conformed and open to scientific developments and aspects of discovery that enable it to change because the more we find out about nature, the more we find out about the way and we can make the two ideas mesh quite nicely. But it sounds like from what you're saying that there is additional aspects to the religious tradition that might go a step further. You mentioned reincarnation. That's that's probably one that can't really be scientifically um, attested. But what are some of the other aspects of Taoism that uh, don't sit so well with the pure observations of, of the natural phenomena? I mean, so one of the whole um, ideas of, of Taoism, um, so in Taoism, one of the aspects of it is, is internal alchemy. Um, and so it's, it's, and the goal of internal alchemy is the same goal of traditional alchemy back, you know, in the 1700s, um, which is to live forever, right? Um, and so by, by aligning your body in the right way, um, and, and sort of training it in the right way, you can achieve immortality, you know, in a way. And, um, and so as you get to the more, uh the more religious aspects so a lot of times when you're talking about Taoism, you see that 
um, people sort of divide it into either philosophical Taoism or into religious Taoism, um, and uh, which is okay. Um, and then you can always say the philosophical Taoism is the more natural, and then the religious has all these other mystical elements thrown in. Um, but the but the problem with with separating it like that is a lot of those philosophical aspects are actually rooted in the religious aspects, right? And they come out through those. So you can't um, have one without the other, right? I mean, they're intricately tied to one another. I mean, you can just take the philosophical ideas and. and believe in those and then not be Taoist, but I don't think you can be a Taoist if you don't accept all the other stuff that comes with it. Yeah. That's part of it. Um, so yeah, I mean, just, so a lot of things like that in the internal alchemy and things like that is, it, I think for me, um, there's also, um, ta- they, they use talismans um, in Taoism. Um, so a lot of things like that just... Can you what, what, the the new talismans? What what are what are they? Uh, so talismans are any sort of um, type of object that gets blessed or whatever enchanted, um, however you want to speak about it. But they get invoked with um, some sort of power that they can benefit you from. So like you can have a talisman of of wealth. Right, and it'll make sure that you are never poor. Right, you can have a talisman of health, and it'll make sure you you don't get sick and things like this. Um, and so things like that. Um, you know, not again to my my science sided brain is just um, you know I can't I can't wrap my head around that. Um, yeah. So yeah, but again, I like the, the philosophical aspects, but again, to me, I don't think that it's fair to say oh, I'm a philosophical Taoist. I, I don't think that that works. Um, so. Yeah, that's sort of not being honest to the, the system of where you're, where the source of your beliefs are coming from. Yeah, yeah. And the, when you say the the, the notion of talismans um, ensuring um, good health or um, ensuring personal wealth, it's quite interesting because Taoism, there's the... Uh, People are probably quite familiar with the yin-yang, which is a, a symbol of Taoism, and that's all about, um, you know, have, having the two sides that create a cohesive whole. Um, and they talk in Taoism about you can't have health without sickness, you can't have wealth without poor, you can't have light without dark, you can't have death without life. But with these talismans, they're trying to negate a side of that uh, a side of that cohesion, um, that duality, that cohesive duality, which you're right seems almost seems at odds with the um, the the thinking of, of the religion itself. Of, I mean, of course, the thing the thing with the talismans is right. Like, um, so I mean, you can have a talisman of good health, right, and it can, it can bring you good health. But that doesn't mean that you can't get sick, right? It just means that, um, you know, this talisman is working in your favor to bring the, the, the Tao it, to you in such a way that, you know, you, you don't get sick. Um, but it doesn't mean that you can't get sick, and certainly people do. Um, so, I mean, it, so I can see how it could seem like they're trying to eliminate one of the sides. Um, I don't necessarily think that's what they're trying to do. 
Um, but uh, but I think what what they're doing is they're sort of trying to leave the energy at a balance point, right? Because if you're, you know, the opposite extreme can also be true too. You can be too healthy, right? Um, which is a thing, right? So um, I think it's it's not trying to lean to one side. It's trying to, to maintain that balance of making sure that you're not either extreme. So it sounds like you have this, uh, this unquenchable thirst to uh, discover the the very nature of our of our being um which has both led down a a religious path but you being a, a philosopher has also led down a, a more secular philosophical route um which has been with you for, for, for quite a long time it sounds um you don't hear of many stories of kids at the age of 11 um you know, asking to be taken to the, the Buddhist temple down the road, except Lisa Simpson, of course, wanting to go, wanting to go to her Buddhist temple. And so has, do you think that that real fixation on who we are and how we exist in the world has really uh, changed the way that you, that you live in the world? Obviously, it's changed what you've done because you've gone on to pursue a career in academia but do you think it's changed how you relate to people and, and interact with um not only people but also also, also things as well i think it's given you a, like a depth of insight into how you you live your life i think it's given me a different way of of appreciating um my interaction with the world my engagement with it i don't I don't necessarily want to say I think it's given me an insight. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about that, but um, I think it definitely has given me a, a, a different type of appreciation. Um, you know, it's not just um, looking at, at objects in the world as, as, as counter to me, you know, the subject in the world that's making its way through an objects. Um, I, 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 I think it's given me this appreciation of everything in the world as its own subject um which in and of itself has value and is in relation to everything else in the world um and so rather than looking at the world as me having relation to everything else i look at everything as having a relation to everything else um but then independently of those relations also having its own being to itself right um which gives it its own internal value rather than just the value that it gets from its relationality. Uh, and so I think I've gained that. Um, whether, or not, or whether or not that's some profound insight, I don't know. I, I don't know that I'd go that far. But, um. <laughs> and, and you would sort of say that that, that would be pretty close to your, you, would, you were talking before about how you've come up with your own um, type of worldview. Is, is what you were saying just then pretty close to how you would define that worldview? I mean, it, it's a part of it. Uh, it's, 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 there's, it's a lot more intricate than that. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's a part of it. It's, for me, it's mostly about um, the idea of perfecting uh, who we are as a human, um, sort of trying to always um, reach towards our potential um, and it's really about uh, sort of this never-ending 
um, I guess, journey of reaching this potential, the journey of going on perfecting, um, perfecting our, who we are. Um, but there's a, there's a lot to it. Um, but yeah, this idea that everything is constantly in relation, but then it also is um, sort of having value if you abstract away those relations, right? So if you take an object and you abstract away all its relationality, um, that is sort of the true uh, object. That's the true subject of that object. Um, and then when you throw it back into its relationality, that's the object that we interact with and we engage with. Um, but because it has its, its own thing in and of itself, that gives it its own value, um, as opposed to just having the value from me picking it up and using it, right? Um, and I think that's that's an important foundation, uh, and it also marks a pretty big shift, um, and the shift sort of started um, by a guy by the name of Graham Harmon, um, but um, it marks a pretty profound shift from the way thinking has gone for ever, um, really. Um, we've always had this subject-object distinction um, in our in our the way we interact with the world and we think about the world. Um, but uh, once you get this idea that there each object in and of themselves also has its own um, sort of in and of itself value, um, it makes everything objects or it makes everything subjects, and uh, it, it evens the playing field. And uh, that's a that's a big change. And I think that that's a that's a starting point for some sort of new way of thinking about the world. That's I, I know you you did your your both your master's thesis and your PhD thesis on uh, your master's thesis was on was on Heidegger and his relationship to to Taoism, and then your PhD thesis was on specifically his notion of being is that a fair summary of, of what those two um research tasks were on yeah so it's, my master's was on heidegger and his relationship to taoism um and then my phd was actually um a, a look at kant heidegger and then looking at this new wave of graham Harmon's philosophy which is called object-oriented ontology and looking at how we can take object-oriented ontology, relook at Kant's philosophy, and reimagine a new way of thinking that emerges from that. Um, and if, if Kant had been a little bit more specific um, and had this idea of, of evening the playing field, where that trajectory may have led. And so where I think that leads is an idea called spectral ontology, but um, that's a it's a whole different can of worms. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's for another day. Um, <laughs> but yeah, because Descartes was probably the one who uh, most manifested the idea of subject object, and that us as human beings in particular have a relationship that is almost separate from the the, the world, and we sort of look on as as observers. And then Heidegger really challenged that off the back of um, off the back of being taught by Husserl, was who was also a, a German philosopher, who um, and sorry, I'm telling, I'm obviously telling you all these things that you already know, um, but he started the phenom 
phenomenology. And that, that, that differs because the human really comes into the, um, the world there. And so that, like, there's a clear and sharp distinction. But I don't get – but actually, we'll stay with this for the moment. Um, when, when you're doing your um, Heidegger and Taoism master's thesis – I remember trying to read um, Heidegger's work, Being in Time, maybe five years ago, and I got maybe like a chap- two chapters in and a bit more and just thought, no, this is impossible. Like, this work is just so uh, deep and convoluted and every sentence would take me, you know, a good t- time and a fair bit of thinking power just to get through it. But then I remember when I came across some of the ideas of Taoism and went back, I was able to read it a bit more easily because you almost knew where he was coming from. Um, but do you want to just give us a bit of a, an outline of what uh, Heidegger's argument was there and how it sort of relates to uh, the general idea of Taoism? Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll give that a shot. Um, <laughs> yeah, like you said, so Heidegger, Heidegger is very complex. I mean, he's one of the hardest to read. Um, you know, he's up there with Hegel and, and some others, but um, uh, he's definitely very, very convoluted. And I think part of the reason for that is see, a lot of the, the words that he uses are invented words. Um, so they're not, you can't really translate them very well. Um, yeah. So that's like part dust of the issue. And dust man and like those sorts of things. Yeah. These types of things. Um, and so that's impossible. Like, yeah, how's the layperson meant to have any idea of what's going on? Yeah. So, I mean, in some ways, it's actually just as hard, if not harder, in the actual German. Um, so it, it, it doesn't help to read it in German either. Um, but, uh, but so his general idea here is that. Um, he wants he wants to give us an understanding of being um, existence on the whole being big B being and in order to do that he looks at how we relate to the world and you know he says that there's two ways in which we really engage with our world there's um, presence at hand and there's readiness to hand and presence at hand are sort of the is the relationship we have to the things that are just kind of in the background, we don't really notice them. They're not things that we readily are going to grab and start to use. And then the readiness to hand are the things that we're ready to, we can just pick up and use like a hammer. It's ready to hand because I can pick it up and I can smack stuff with it. Right. But like a, a vase that has fallen and shattered on the floor that I can't use anymore. It's just kind of there. Yeah. Um, so these are the two ways we engage with the world. And what's interesting, particularly for Heidegger, um, in this sort of when we're talking about subject-object distinctions, is that um, for Heidegger, because these are very engaged ways of being in the world, um, only Dasein has this. Only Dasein has these ways of engaging with the world, and therefore only Dasein has a world, because these are the two relationships that make up world, and only Dasein does this. So animals for Heidegger don't have world, right? Objects don't have world. Only Dasein has world. Um, and so what he does with this is he tries to analyze the human being's relationship to their world 
in order to better understand what the nature of being is. And one of the reasons why you may have had a hard time getting through this is that he, you know, his books, being in time, right? Zion's time. Um, and, and being in time is supposed to be about big B being and about time. Um, but he never really gets to time. Um, very, very end of the book, he gets a little bit to time. And he doesn't really even finish being. Um, he never really, really gets anywhere with it. Um, he does a lot of analysis of the human being's relationship to the world. And he talks about how that helps helps us to understand being. Um, but then he never really goes into any more detail about being. That's about it. Um, because being is something that you can't talk about. You can't explain it. It's it, 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 Once you start talking about it, you've limited it because it's this unlimited thing. And so right there, you already see a connection with Taoism. Because the Tao is unspeakable. It's unknowable. It's infinite. Right. Anytime you start talking about it, you've limited it. Right. So you already see this connection right here. Um, and that's just from the two main concepts. Right. Uh, Heidegger talks about something called authenticity as well. And our authentic way of being a human being, which is part of this engagement with our world the way that only the human can. In Taoism, you have a conception of an authentic way to live, too you have the conception of wu-wei. And wu-wei is this idea of uh, literally inaction. But, um, of course, it doesn't mean not doing anything. Um, you know, sitting on a couch all day not doing anything is not genuine wu-wei. Um, but for wu-wei, what it really means is not is going against the natural order, right? Not going against the natural way of, of the Tao. So... So here we see a connection with the two ways of being authentic. You have not going against the natural way, the Tao, and you have living in a certain way that's a relation to the world and engaging with the world the way it is. Right? So you get a similarity here, too. So, and then there's a lot of other smaller, minute ones that are more specific, but... Um, yeah, and so is he? He's really trying to um, get us to enter into a different relationship with those those various objects that exist around us, with with both the hammer and the vase, so that we gain a, a greater appreciation from them and can better understand how they fit within the context of the world. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and he sort of wants us to look at the world as a series of relations, and and, um, and that's just sort of the way that we, as Dasein, engage with our world. Um, so, but that's again, when you, you look at Taoism, it's it's very similar in that um, the way that you you engage with your world in an authentic way is to sort of just go along with the Tao's flow, right? It's, you know, not going against the natural order. Um, and that's very similar to acting and, and, and looking at the world and engaging with it in within the relation that you have to it, right? Not outside of the relation you have to it, which, of course, for Heidegger is not possible. It, it's interesting because the, 
the 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 Wu way of, of Taoism, which is the the in active inaction, can also like contrast with what Heidegger is saying because he also talk he talks about when living that authentic life, we need to distinguish our our thoughts and our relationships with objects and people from the dust man, which is this the, the overarching body of people, which I suppose you could loosely translate to um, society now. And it's coming up with your own path in Heidegger. You're trying to distinguish yourself to create some sort of personal identity that um, affects your authenticity. Whereas Taoism, it's trying to not conform, but making sure that you are within the, the contours of the way. Yeah, I mean, I think that in, in, remo- in trying to disengage with the they self, right, for the authenticity, um, the they self or Dasman um, is sort of the, the persona we take on that's being influenced constantly by the pressures of everything else in our daily life, right? So one of the things for Heidegger is that authenticity is always fleeting because we're always so caught up with what we're doing, right? So we get, um, you know, if we're writing an email to our coworker, right, we get so caught up in that that we don't notice anything else that's going around us, right? Um, and so we just get cut off in literally what he calls our everydayness. Right, we get caught up in our everydayness. Um, and I think what Wu Wei teaches us is a way to kind of not get caught up in our everydayness and just go along with our everydayness, right? So it, it, I think the principle's the same um, because what Wu Wei wants isn't for us to get caught up in our everydayness. It wants us to not be caught up in it, but to go along with it, which are two different things, right? You can sort of just not resist it versus um, actively fight against it, right? And um, I think Wu Wei is saying to be authentic, we don't necessarily want to um, fight against it, but we also don't necessarily want to resist it. Whereas for Heidegger, we we want to try to resist the, the self, but ultimately we can't, right? And Heidegger's very clear that we ultimately can't do that. Um, but what we should do for Heidegger is we should sort of um, try to recognize more often when we get the moments of fleeting authenticity that allow us to recognize that, you know, when we are just kind of there in the moment and we're not caught up in our everydayness, we should try to recognize and appreciate those moments and try to get more of them throughout our time um, so that we're not constantly caught up in our everydayness. But I think what he's really after is sort of the same thing that Wu Wei is after, um, just in different terms, right? I think what he's ultimately after is living authentically is sort of recognizing your relation to the world and to that that order of the way things are structured. Um, And what's interesting is both Heidegger and Taoism are also mystical. Um, so, uh, and Heideggerians will hate when I say that, but he definitely is very mystical. Um, so. <laughs> right. And, and what, and what part about him is, is, is mystical? Well, I mean, his whole conception of being is very mystical, 
right? I mean, anytime you have an unspeakable force or unspeakable or unknowable thing, I mean, you, you've already transcended into the realm of mysticism, right? I mean, uh, so, I mean, even just that is already mystical. And in fact, in some ways, uh, he becomes more mystical because he's treating being in a way that um, is unique to him and that uh, he's sort of trying to be Re- reawaken the question of being as he puts it himself and it, it kind of casts him into this sort of mystic sage um you know leading the way kind of character um which is just really funny um but and that's the sort of that's the sort of image that he tried to cultivate for himself by he, he lived in in the black forest and, and very rarely went into the, you know built up society so that yeah, that's interesting. He he was consciously trying to, maybe consciously or not, uh, trying to sort of affect this perception of him as as a sage. But but it sounds like um, people people who, who who like Heidegger don't really enjoy him being viewed as such. Yeah, my my. I see my interpretation of Heidegger runs along with uh, with Graham Harmon's interpretation of Heidegger, which is not overly well liked as an interpretation of Heidegger. Um, but you know what he can do. Um, I just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, you won't be authentic, and then you'd be pissing off Heidegger even more. <laughs> That's right. Um, so you know we just we go along with it. But um, you know most most Heideggerians, um, you know Heidegger Heidegger almost has like a cult following, right? Where Heideggerians are like completely devoted to Heidegger. And then you get people who completely hate Heidegger. Um, and then, you know, th- there really is no middle point. You get the people who completely hate him or you get the people who are just like completely devoted to Heidegger. And uh, what I think Graham Harmon's uh, interpretation allows is for people who appreciate Heidegger, but obviously recognize the, the problems in Heidegger and try to use his system to actually generate something useful. Um, and so, uh, of course, I studied in Slovenia, which is, you know, um, everybody there that's a Heideggerian or, or super, super Heideggerian. So um, that was a lot of fun. But So you, you philosophically, you sort of moved on from Heidegger and, and you went and, and started um, doing this, this work in spectral ontology. Um, if you can, do you want to just give us a, a brief um, thing of that, and then and then we might um, go on to talk about your your meditation as well. Sure. Uh, so, special ontology is a term that uh, I use to explain um, sort of how I think the structure of ontology should look like or does look like. Um, so, traditionally, you have um, this idea of beings and non-beings, right? And non-beings don't exist because they're non-being. But then, you, so basically everything is a being. Um, and then you get this sort of hierarchy of structure, right? You get subjects and objects, right? So subjects are sort of more important than objects, right? We are, it, it basically becomes us against everything else, right? Humans versus everything. And what Heidegger tries to do is eliminate sort of this distinction. Um, and Graham Harman agrees with this elimination of of this distinction, but the problem is with Heidegger that he doesn't give objects other than human beings any sort of special privilege, right? So so only Dasein is special and only Dasein is privileged. Um, But 
Harmon wants to wipe out that special privilege that Dasein has. So he creates object-oriented ontology, which means that all, and this is very general, of course, but it means on a basic level that all objects are on an equal ontological footing. There is no special relation to the world. Everything is just as equally ontologically valid as everything else. So that works fine. Um, my issue with Harmon's uh, way of thinking is we basically just disagree on on what a withdrawn object is, um, basically is, is what our difference is. Um, so a withdrawn object is an object that is removed from its relationality. Um, so if you take an object and you completely remove all relations it has to the world, um, what do we call that? And for Harmon, he calls it a real object. Like that is the object in and of itself. Um, my issue with that is I can't think of an object with that would be removed from its relationality. I don't know what that would look like um, because the second you remove it from its relationality, it, it, it doesn't exist in the world. Um, so wherever it exists is in some sort of transcendent realm because it doesn't exist in the world, that's for sure. Um, because the world is made up of relationality. Um, and so in some sense, the world itself is synonymous with relationality. So if you take an object and you remove it from relationality, to me it doesn't exist. Right? <laughs> to me that, that, that's not um, so uh, I have a different term for it. I call them um, aptitudes or spectricities. And these are sort of not this what it does is it reputs non-beings onto the spectrum. Um, so instead of just having one line of beings, you have you, you go back to beings and non-beings, but in non-beings there's a specific type of non-being called a spectricity, which is not there. It doesn't exist, but at the same time, it, it's sort of a precondition of any objects existing. Uh, so without this withdrawn object that Harmon calls a real object, or that I call spectricity, you couldn't have the object in relations. Because if you add relations to nothing, you will not have anything anyway. So if you add the relationality onto something, there has, to, there has to be something that you can add relationality to when you bring it into the world. So there has to be something withdrawn from relationality, such that when it gets manifested into the world, it can have relationality. And so I call that a spectricity, because I don't think it can be an object, because it doesn't exist. Um, but uh, that's the big difference between me and, me and Harman. Uh, but ultimately, the reason I call it spectral ontology is you get this idea of a spectrum, right? It's a flat ontology, like object-oriented ontology, but you get a spectrum. It's not, it's not just like a line, right? You get a spectrum of, of non-beings, which include things like spectricities. You get beings, which are the typical, you know, everyday objects. And then you get hyper-beings, which is the, a term from Timothy Morton. And it means things that sort of have no, like, physical grounding in the world, but nonetheless interact and engage with the world. So things like climate change, right? Climate change is a, an idea of a, of a, of a hyper-being, in a sense. Um, and so 
you get a spectrum of being, basically, in special ontology. Uh, so that's, that's a really fast overview of a really complex topic. Yeah. Um, can I, can, if I may, can I have a crack at, at spectricity? Say if there's an alien life form that exists, let's say, one light year away and it sends something to Earth and we have no prior conception of what that object is, they send this object to Earth and it gets to Earth and then we see it and by seeing it we enter into a relationship with it and then it becomes a, a, a thing or, or a being. Um, the spectricity of that object would be when it's back on the alien planet and and it doesn't exist. There's no human conception of it at all. And even to say, like someone would have to come up with a name for it and that would, you know, just be plucked out of thin air and no one would have ever heard of that name before it had come to Earth. But while it's still a, a one light year away, it has that uh, it has that spectricity in its absence of our relationship. Yeah, that's that's actually a really good way to put it. Um, yeah, I mean, more or less, that's that's right. Um, and one of the things that this allows us to do is um, so one of Harmon's issues is he he's trying to resolve accounting for the ability to change if we consider objects to be completely in relation all the time. So if you are constantly, you know, in relation and you have no room for more relations, um, then you can't change. And so the way, the way he accounts for this is he says, well, we're not exhausted by our relations. We can always be and enter into more relations. Um, and and I don't agree with that. I think we are constantly, ex we, we are constantly in relation to everything as much as we can all the time. The, pro the difference is to how do we stretch it? So I like to think of it as like we're kind of always wrapped with rubber bands and like we're constantly, you know, rubber bands in all the different directions kind of a thing. And then what it, what the different, how we account for change is the different stretchings of the relations in different ways, right? So they can always be stretched more or less in different directions, but I don't think we can add new relations, right? I don't think anything is ever a new relation. Um, so, yes. Um, so I think how you explained it is pretty close. I would just say that I, I don't think it's not that it's not that we're not in relation to it. It's just a different pulling of a given relationship that we already have. But yeah, right. Um, so, yeah. So like a different different tension there. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Well, that, yeah. That's that's really interesting because it. In in humans um, in, in in humanity's relationship with with the earth and and with society, um, humans are always sort of held on a bit of uh, we hold ourselves, I suppose, on a bit of a pedestal above the, almost everything else. And so it's interesting to see a philosophical um, school that's really sort of equalizing the the playing field and and putting us. Um, on sort of an equal ontological footing to, to you know everything from this pen to to the computer, and and to do that to do that in a coherent way is is quite is quite fascinating. But 
coming back coming back to yourself, um, you, you've also been practicing meditation for for quite a while, and you're also a meditation teacher. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. I'm a meditation and mindfulness coach. So, what sort of meditation are you are you teaching? So, I do all different kinds. I I usually encourage people to start with zazen, um, just because it's, uh, and I I don't mean it in the, the in the common sense, but it's it's in in many ways it's the easiest. Um, and I don't mean easiest as in it's easy to do, but it's the easiest in that. Um, I don't think I think anybody can start learning zazen. I I don't think anybody can start learning like transcendental meditation. I think you have to already know what you're doing in meditation to to do that. Um, but I think anybody can start with zazen and learn zazen. Um, and so in that sense, it's the easiest. Um, can, can you give a brief explanation, sorry, of of, um, of what zazen is? Sure. So Zazen is a type of meditation that's common in Zen Buddhist um, teachings and, and philosophy. And ultimately what it is, is it's a way of trying to connect body-mind and becoming completely aware of your surroundings and, and your sensations and trying to connect all that into one thing. Um, so what you, what you do in Zazen is it's literally um, sitting practice. So you, you do what's called sitting, and you literally sit for about 30 minutes or so, and you just kind of um, let yourself absorb and be aware of sensations and, and what you're feeling, what you're hearing, what, you know, did, did the different place on your body get warm, um, what's going on, what are you feeling, these types of things. Um, and, you know, it's best to sit facing a blank wall, looking slightly down and uh, and sort of that this is kind of what you do and because it doesn't require much other than learning how to be open um, to these different sensations that's why I'm calling it the easiest not that it's easy to do it's very difficult to do um, but um, it's easiest in that sense I don't think um, I think anybody can sit down and then kind of start to practice it if you sit down and you start to practice transcendental meditation I don't think you'll be very successful yeah, unless, unless you're the Beatles, of course. Right, yeah. So um, so that that's why I usually encourage people to serve themselves in and, um, and start doing that. And once we get a hang of that, once we're able to connect body-mind, then we can move into some other forms of meditation that are a little bit more complex. Um, but that's usually the one I encourage people to start with. How, how do you go about a, a common thing that I hear with people trying to meditate is that they start, they do it, they feel like they're not getting anywhere and then they just stop. And it's, it seems so common that it, it's probably a universal phenomenon. How do you get people to, how do you assist them to break through that, some of those initial barriers that they come across? Yeah. I mean, so a couple things, right? I mean, first, I mean, it's just, Again, you always have to keep reminding people that, you know, that, that this is a long process. Like, it's not something that you just can do, right? I mean, meditation takes a lot of effort. The other thing is you, you, I, tr I try to break down some misconceptions about meditation um, that are very prevalent outside of, outside of the actual Eastern traditions that sprung meditation. Um, things like, you know, oh, meditation is calming and relaxing. It's like, well, kind of. 
but it's it's actually a very difficult process. Like it's not an it's not like just sitting down and relaxing is not meditation. Like it's great, you should do that, but that's not the same thing as meditation, right? Um, so, you know, you have to get people to realize and under, better understand what meditation actually is, um, so that they're prepared for it. Because if they're 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 typically looking for what they have learned meditation is, and oftentimes that's not true meditation, right? So first you have to reevaluate what meditation is and what they're looking for. Um, then it's, then I, like I said at the beginning, it's, it's about knowing that it's a practice and it takes a long time. And then lastly, I think by integrating, um, some mindfulness exercises throughout the day is a good way to do it. So, um, one of the things that I have my clients do is mindfulness journaling. So every day they sort of wake up and they do a journal. Um, and then at the end of the day, they reflect on their day and they compare their morning journal about what they want to do that day what they want to achieve as far as mindfulness goes and then at the end of the day they, they reflect on their day and see what they did what they didn't do what they want to do better the next day and so they, they have this constant pattern of thought right and the more they're kind of immersed in thinking about it the more they're willing to sort of dive into the meditation and kind of just put that on their their calendar for the day right um so that tends to help a lot and and that's like making it um like putting it in this is a time that we're going to do it and really prioritizing the meditation above uh the other distractions which can so easily get in the way because when it seems like your meditation is not going anywhere and you've got other pressing things it's so easy for that one to be the first thing off the list i think one of the things is meditation planned meditation sounds like ugh, but like that it seems like it defeats the whole point but um you know until you get into a habit of doing it um it 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 helps right having it on the calendar knowing okay this is my whatever 30 minute block to do meditation, right? And I can't do anything else except meditation for 30 minutes, right? Um, but at the same time, knowing, hey, once these 30 minutes are up, I'm, I'm done meditating, I have to move on, right? I can't linger either, right? So having it planned in sort of helps you generate that internal clock, right? So that every time, eventually, once you, you get used to it, every time at that time, you, you just know, all right, it's my meditation time. And then you get in the habit of doing it. But you, in order for it to become less of a burden, it has to become a habit. And developing habit is it's a process. So, you know, scheduling it in for the first little while can help us develop that habit, which eventually will help us just kind of do it. Right. Yeah. So that's important. Yeah. And in your meditation practice, how, how do you think it's helped you living your life? Uh-huh. So... Personally, a lot. Um, so, you know, I, when I was younger, um, I was a very angry person. Um, like, I got angry really fast uh, when, when I didn't understand things because I, I always wanted to understand things and, and know how things worked and things like this. And if I couldn't understand something or something didn't fit logically to me, I would get very upset and very angry. 
and meditation itself has, you know, I've been doing it for a long time now, but um, I can I can still remember back when I first started it. Meditation just um, helped me to uh, always go to the root causes of those, you know, of my frustrations and of my anger, and and recognize that it's things that I can control. Right? Usually, it's always something that I can control. It's my reaction to the world. Right? It's the way that I'm I'm choosing to engage with my world, and I I can engage with it in a different way. Right? And so for me personally, it's helped me constantly be mindful of both the world around me but also my engagement with that world and allow me to kind of open up other doors of engagement which have been helpful and that that sort of comes back to your your like philosophical worldview of of, of being mindful of, of of how you're relating to to things in just your day-to-day life yeah and it also helps i think recognize um personal um, not just personal engagement, but personal responsibility, right, for that engagement, um, rather than pushing it off. And this is one of the things that um, always bothers me about um, mysticism as well, is you tend to push off responsibility onto something, um, whether it's a deity or it's um, scripture or whatever it is that you're pushing it off on, you know, the way, whatever it is, you're always pushing off responsibility to something. And I think taking personal responsibilities is a big key in developing mindfulness. And so for me, um, when, I'm, when I'm looking for oftentimes is a different way to take responsibility. And, and, and it's only because it's only through taking responsibility that we can then actually alter our perspective. Um, because we first have to recognize that it's our uh, it's, it's ours to change. Right. Um, it, it's our engagement with the world that we can change. We can't change the world, but we can change our engagement with it. And so if we shove that responsibility off on something else to change the world, um, it's not going to happen. We have to change the way we engage with it first. Um, and so I think that that's, that's absolutely key for me whenever I'm looking for something. So, Yeah. And then through that meditation, you can really um, place yourself at the center of, of, of that relationship how you're entering into that and try and alter it in the part of your consciousness that uh, you're able to tap into. Right. And and it's such a, it's such a good skill, especially once you get to a stage where you're able to start getting angry and instantly realize that, um, okay, I can see why I'm getting angry. I can see how that's making me angry let's try and just change that a little bit and 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 coming back to Taoism, go back towards what is probably the right way yeah yeah and i mean and i think i think that's really ultimately the whole point right um you know ultimately i think the whole point is to sort of be a walking meditation right to be able to walk and then at any point you need to you can put yourself into that meditative state um, and then sort of remove yourself from, from the world temporarily and just kind of reflect in the moment. Um, I think that that's, that that's ultimately the objective of a practice meditation is to be able to do that at any time you need to not have to spend the, the hour to, to sit down and, and meditate, right? The, the goal is to get so good at it that you can be a walking meditation. Um, so that's ultimately what to strive for, I would think. And, and do you have... The, the clients that come to see you, do you uh, firstly see, see um, 
a real uh, desire at, at the start to to improve themselves in those sort of ways. You, you mentioned that people tend to have a bit of a misconception about what meditation is, but are most people coming with the um, the intention of fixing, not fixing, but altering their relationship with the world at that fundamental level? I would say yes, but I don't think that that's what they are consciously looking for. Um, but yes, I think ultimately that's what they're looking for. But um, usually, when people first look, you know, look for it, they're looking for, um, you know, they're having, they're struggling with something, they can't understand something, or they have an ethical dilemma, or you know, they are, you know, questioning their, you know, you know, their relationship with their current religious practice or something like that. Um, I don't know that they're necessarily questioning their engagement with their world and they want to change their, their mindset. Usually they want to understand why they can't, they are not sort of on a cohesive uh, working process with the world, but they don't necessarily think that they have to change their mindset of the world. Um, and so that's usually something that, that they start to realize is that, uh, all, you know, all this stuff that I don't like in my life is actually the result of my own doing and so i have to sort of be the one to to work on, on developing to change my outlook um so it, it, usually they don't come wanting to change their outlook usually they they recognize that they have to change their outlook um and it's part of the, the learning and that yeah that yeah that's as you say like that's the evolutionary process yeah well hopefully that gives um our listeners something to think about but zach uh that's probably a good place to leave it um, so thank you very much for, for joining me. I think that was a really both wide ranging and an interesting conversation. Um, but yeah, there's obviously a lot more, um, thinking that needs to go or probably, probably thought that needs to go into some of those ideas because they're, they're quite, some of them are quite complex and, um, they, uh, as you, you know, and are probably finding out it can take a, a long time to study before you, before you start to get there. Um, but yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for coming in and chatting with me. So it's been, yeah, it's been really good. Yeah. Well, no, thanks so much for having me on. This is great. And, uh, and thanks everyone for listening.